what's cool is he did tell us why he came. For this reason I've come. To bring truth and to be the truth. And I just go, man, that, it was sobering for me. And so the application, I think, is even more sobering. So I'll read the application, and then we're going to do it for a, a couple minutes. It's really just a meditation to think about lies and truth. Spoiler alert. Um, for those that have been around me long enough, you know this is just speaking in my love language. But here's the challenge here. Spend some time thinking about what lies about God, yourself, relationships, emotions, and life you're currently battling. Write them on your phone or a piece of paper and take a few moments to find truth and scriptures on that topic. And then write those verses on the back of either your paper or the phone and spend time with truth himself. Ask him to transform the way you view that area of your life so that you can walk into the freedom of the truth. So we'll just spend a few minutes. If you want to close your eyes, I'll walk you through a guided meditation that I've done before. Or you can keep them open and stare at me while I do this. Either option is fine. So, <sighs> Just try to clear your mind. And go ahead and on your own, just invite Jesus in, into your world. Try to picture him somehow. What we're about to do is e- not easy to conceptualize, so it's helpful to grab onto something. So a picture... Maybe Jesus is with you on a park bench. Maybe he's driving with you. He's on the mountain that you're hiking. But try to envision Jesus is nearby. Hopefully you're able to envision him and just ask him inside. You don't need to verbally speak it. Just, Lord, what are the lies that I'm believing? Is there anything within me that you'd like to reveal? Some in the room might have an answer at this point, and some might not. That's totally fine. We're going to keep pressing on. Just ask him what the truth is about what it is that you're believing. Ask him to apply one of his truths to this lie. And then just ask if there's any action step, any way that you can obey in light of what it is that he's just told you.
And I'll just end with the prayer from the book here. Jesus, you are the truth that sets us free. So often I have let the enemy whisper lies into my heart, and I have actually believed them. Help me to fill my life with you and with your words so that I can recognize lies when I see them. Fill me to overflowing with your truth so that your words spill out into the lives of those around me, bringing them hope, joy, and ultimately freedom that can only be found in you. Amen. Amen. Peter's going to lead us in some songs here. All right, we'll go from here. Good morning. Uh, Today my text will be in John uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to get there. But I'll read it, so we'll all get to go through it. Um, And as you're getting there, uh, just as we have the nativity accounts from Matthew and Luke, uh, John provides us one as well, um, but it's more of a cosmic account of Christ's advent. So uh, we'll take a look at that, uh, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And then dropping down to verse 14, we have... The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And if you continue reading in John, you'll see that the word which became flesh is referring to Jesus. And if the word is God and the word became Jesus, then Jesus is God. And as John said, we have seen his glory, but we should ask ourselves, what is Jesus' glory? I know I can read that in John and not actually know what to think of Jesus' glory. So, to answer that, I'd like us to slow down and recount who God is and the magnificent paradox that is the incarnation of our God. Yahweh, as he revealed himself to Israel, is the God who created the heavens and the earth, both animal and man. The God who renewed the earth in his covenant with Noah and promised a nation to Abraham. This is who was conceived in Mary's womb. The God who brought plagues upon Egypt and split the Red Sea, who shook Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning and sustained Israel in the desert by bringing water from rocks and bread from the sky. This is who would need to be nursed as an infant. He is the one who crumbled Jericho's walls with the sound of trumpets and shouts, who brought confusion and hailstones upon Israel's enemies and rained fire from heaven in the face of Baal's prophets. He joined Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace and held shut the lion's mouths so they would not devour Daniel. This is who was a defenseless baby needing to be protected by others. And as he fulfilled his promise to Israel by bringing them out of uh, exile back into the promised land after 70 years, Similarly, he fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy of Emmanuel by becoming Jesus and entering our world. This God who entered the world as a baby was upholding all of creation even from the moment of his human conception. And as he was escorted by Joseph and Mary to flee Herod's wrath, he was the one that was allowing Herod to even breathe in that time. He came to earth meek and mild, being born not of royal stature, but as a regular person like you and me. And while he knew of his infinite magnitude, he took joy in coming to earth to live with us, to be Emmanuel, 
God with us. And the author of Hebrews helps us make sense of this, as in Hebrews 2.10, it says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Everything in existence is subject to God, yet he came to be a servant for us out of his good pleasure. And he didn't do this spontaneously, but rather he planned it because he deemed it fitting for his great purposes for our salvation. What an amazing God we have, brothers and sisters. I want to move into two exhortations, uh, one to the general believer, regular attender of church, and one to the person who may not know Christ as their God and Savior, who may be tempted to see him in a different light as the world wants to try to present him. So, to the orthodox believer, I know for myself that I can be tempted to sing the lyrics of wonderful Christmas hymns, calling Jesus Emmanuel, yet not actually feel the weight of those words as I sing them. I must remember that Jesus isn't just our get-out-of-jail-free card that, come to, that came to earth so much more than just that. He is the most holy and the most high, and we should not forget our first love and reverence of him just because we're saved. To quote a friend of mine, he said that in our case, it would be terrifying to shrink down and become an ant, but how much bigger is God's descent to become a man, infinite entering into finite? Yet he took joy and great pleasure in this. He saw it fitting in his grand plan of redemption. And brothers and sisters, of all people, we ought to be the most excited in this season because of that. While there is general joys that come with Christmas, we get to celebrate too that our God came to earth to become man and help us walk and worship him properly. We have the surpassing joy of celebrating how God came into the world to dwell with us, and our joy is in the celebration of God, the creator and sustainer of all things, in his condescension to us, showing his great love. So in this we may see how good of a God he is, how worthy he is of our worship, and why his incarnation is far more wonderful than just a means of escaping judgment. So in this we can see his glory, to answer that question. And then to the one who is tempted to see Jesus differently, to maybe see Jesus or question who he actually is because the world wants to give us all forms, of, all forms of truth, as Sean was talking about earlier, where there's so much question of truth. The world around us has much to say about Jesus, and it can be hard when you have all sorts of groups trying to claim Jesus for themselves. Be it Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, Hindus, New Age, etc., none of them recognize Jesus as Yahweh, as it says earlier in the scriptures. Yet contrary to what they say, Jesus is not just some lesser divine being, nor is he an angel, nor is he just a good man or a teacher, but he is God, the eternal creator of all things. And because of this, some people scoff at the idea that he would become a man. They think that it is something beyond his ability or beyond his willingness. Yet denying his ability and willingness to enter the world as a human is actually limiting his power and his goodness, not upholding it. And it is only... Excuse me. It is only in his wonderful power that he could and would do such a thing. So rather than let the rest of the world try and tell you who Jesus is, all of whom contradict the Bible, I ask you that you let the word of God tell you who he is and see his glory in this incarnation. And to wrap up this little talk of mine, I want to put forward a quote by the famous Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, who wrote Brothers Karamazov and Crime and Punishment. He said that if someone proved to me that Christ is outside the truth and that in reality the truth were outside of Christ, then I should prefer to remain with Christ rather than with the truth. 
And friends, we are surrounded by different truth claims in our world today, and often these claims either compete with or outright reject Christ. Yet Jesus tells us that he is the way and the truth and the life. So as we've read John's text telling us of the word which became flesh, I encourage us to remain with Christ, with God who stooped down to walk the earth with us and be Emmanuel. And as you remain with Christ and grow in love with who he is as our one true God, you will see his glory more and more like our friend John did. So I want to close this in prayer and just praise the Lord for entering this world as the one truth and shutting down any other claims of truth that we have in this world. So. Father, we just thank you for your condescension, God, to this world and just your willingness to come walk this earth like us and show us how to walk this earth, God, for stooping down and becoming a child, for being defenseless in human form, yet taking great pleasure in it, God, while it would be horrifying for us to shrink down to an insignificant small size. You, you took pleasure, you took joy, and you saw it fitting in your plan of redemption, God. We thank you for all of the things you've done for us, Lord. We thank you for this time, God. I ask that we see you when we see all of these different mangers and things that are displaying you, God, in this season of Christmas, that we see you and recognize you as the infinite God who came down to save us from our sin. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to talk this morning about weakness and power. Uh, specifically, what does it mean for a king? What does it mean for the Messiah? What does it mean for a Christian to be both weak and powerful? And we're going to look and see at how it's in the kings of the Old Testament and to see what, what did weakness and power mean to the kings in the Old Testament? And how, does, how do we go from weakness to strength? And when we're strong, how do, we, how do we hold that strength in a way that honors and glorifies God? Uh, Jesus himself, we know, was the king born in Bethlehem, born uh, in the place of kings. The, the Bethlehem is the city of David. Uh, but just as David came from a small beginning, so, of course, Jesus came from a small beginning. And we're going to see that Jesus was able to hold weakness and power together in a way that no one else has ever been able to hold or will ever be able to hold it again. And that's one of the reasons that Jesus is our Savior and the one that we depend on both for our weakness and for our power. So let's talk a little bit about Second Samuel and what's happening up until this point. So in Second Samuel, we see uh, a shift in the balance of power from the house of Saul to the house of David. First uh, Samuel, of course, is about the uh, gaining of a king in Israel, the rise and the fall of Saul himself uh, as, he, as he walks away from the Lord, and then about the appointing and the, the victories and the conquests of this soon-to-be king, King David. And Second Samuel the beginning of 2 Samuel documents this transition between Saul and David. So it says in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. It's, a, it's an inner kingdom war. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So we can see this theme right now of strength and power 
and smallness and weakness. And the, this just chronicles the, the rise of David's power. So first, we see uh, David coming in, people chanting, David has slain his, his tens of thousands and Saul only a few. We see David, he, he doesn't build, he takes the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites who are boastful. In 2 Samuel 5, the Jebusites say, you'll never be able to get in here. And then David sends a bunch of men up a, up a drain pipe and just storms the city and takes it. And he renames it the city of David. And that, of course, becomes Jerusalem. Then we see David reestablishing some of the some of the temple practices in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, he goes in and he's bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. And of course, we know the story about Uzzah and ark and the ark and how Uzzah is killed for touching the ark. But also we remember from that story is that David successfully brings it back and he's jumping and rejoicing, wearing the linen ephod, and he's dancing with might before the Lord as they're restoring that. And then, of course, in the next chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's a, uh, David is, is he's, he's gung-ho for the Lord, and he's going to build the Lord a house. And the Lord says, no, 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 you're not going to do this for me. But, in fact, I am going to build you a house, and I'm going to build you a legacy, that, uh, uh, a covenant, an eternal covenant with you and your offspring. So, I mean, this is, this is spiritual significance, of course, the, the lineage of David that leads, of course, to Jesus. So there's so much power being poured into David's reign here. And then David has uh, what is arguably near the height of his, his military prowess, his military power, is here in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. So let's read it together says, After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. So two-thirds of all the people were, were slain, were killed, and one-third was allowed to live. And the Moabs became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rohab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariots, all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. So what is David doing here? I mean, this is, this is the, the, the poet warrior, the young shepherd who played the harp. And here he is, he is brutal in what he does. First, he defeats the Philistines, the long-sworn enemy of the Israelites. Then he goes and he cuts down these Moabites to a third and puts them into subjection to the people of Israel. And then he goes and he takes all of their military and he takes all of their horses. What does it say? 1,700 horsemen and all but it. So 1,600 horses he hamstrings and 100 of them he leaves. Now, what is David doing? Now, we've seen that 
that Saul was weakening in power and David is growing in power. And here at the height of his military power, he is emphasizing, I am in command. You have all been weakened. You will never rise to power again. You are now in subjection to me. And this is, this is, this is certainly like a, 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 a firm hand saying, I am now the king. I am now in control. But you read it and you think, man, this is a little uncharacteristic of you, David. And, and you wonder, what, what, what is happening? What is happening in the mind of David as he is rising into be, to being the king, as he is gaining more and more power? And this is, this is something significant that stands out to me. It stood out while I was actually uh, reading this passage with my kids. We were going through 2 Samuel, and we read that, and I was reading, and I was like, kind of shocked. And I, I said to my, I, I, one of my kids, uh, Timothy, he said, he said, um, Dad, what, what does hamstring mean? Because he didn't, he didn't know. And so we, you know, we pointed to the, the back of the leg and we said, well, it's, it's where they take a, a sword or a knife and they cut the tendons. They cut the tendons in the hamstring so that the horse becomes useless. It becomes weakened. It is good for nothing. The horses become crippled. And when I was explaining it to them, something stood out to me. Something stood out to me about the weakness and the significance of weakness is that David had taken on this military role and he had, he had gained so much power, and he understood how to make someone weak by crippling them. But we remember, David used to be the weakest in his family, and God loved him and called him from the sons of Jesse to be king. All of Saul's family was strong also, except for one. There was one member in Saul's family who was like these horses, who was good for nothing, who was useless, who was weak, and who was crippled. He was just like those horses. And his name was Mephibosheth. He was the weakest in Saul's family. And so I was talking with my kids and they said, what, what do men do with crippled horses? And they said, well, they, 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 they kill them. And well, what, what do men do with crippled men? Well, they're useless. But what did David do with this crippled boy? And then we go to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And 2 Samuel chapter 9 is the peak of the power of the house of David. And it's the valley of weakness for the house of Saul. But all through 2 Samuel, we see that David has been honoring God's promises to, to, as for Saul's house as the anointed house. And so he's defended it. And so David, in his power, he does something amazing. He goes and he decides that he is going to bless, just like a king should, the weakest member of his enemy's house. So he goes and he finds Mephibosheth in chapter 9, and he brings him home, and he sets him at his table, and he blesses all the servants of Saul by granting them a permanent position 
to the descendants of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is being treated like one of the sons of David, even though he is the weakest in his enemy's house. David was the smallest in his house, and now he is the greatest. And in a way similar to David, the smallest in the house of Saul has now become the most honored. Now, what does this have to do with Christmas? Where does the incarnation of Christ fit into this picture? Because at this point in the story in in 2 Samuel, we see this beautiful moment, but then something happens. It takes an unexpected turn. Now, you might be familiar with the story, but it happens right after this. The power of David begins to decline. The next chapter shows that David tries to act in kingly generosity, and it's rejected. And then the following chapter in 2 Samuel is the most infamous story in all of David's life. Although David was a better man than Saul and a better king than Saul, we see that even in this act of grace, he could not be the king that Israel needed. David's power had become too much for him, and it had begun to turn against him and corrupt him. There's this great, there's this great line. Well, no, I'm not going to share that. Jesus... He was a son like David. He was, he was, he was a man like David in the, in the line, in the inheritance, in the lineage. He was a man after God's own heart. But here's the thing. We see how David failed. And we see how Jesus was the true and the better David. But in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we see that Jesus is also the true and the better Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth knew weakness his whole life. He never went away. He was permanently with him. He was always a cripple. He always had to be carried to the table. Now, here's this this quote from uh, the first Captain America. It says, because the strong man has known power all his life, he may lose respect for that power. But a weak man who knows the value of strength and he knows compassion So David grew and he began to forget the the significance of weakness. But Mephibosheth, who was a weak man, he knew the value of strength and he knew compassion. And Jesus became weak like Mephibosheth. He took on flesh, the flesh of humanity. He became like a servant, it says in Philippians chapter 2. And he knew what it was now and forever to be weak. It says in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, that he was crucified in weakness, and he lives now by the power of God. But it's this incarnation, the weakness of the incarnation, that shows that the Christ became both the mighty king like David, but he also became the helpless child like Mephibosheth. When we read this story, we tend to read ourselves as Mephibosheth, and we should Christ carries us to the table. But we also remember that Christ himself became weak. He had to depend on the power of the Spirit. He was carried by the Spirit through his ministry. We even see that Jesus, in his weakness, in his fleshly weakness, he had to be helped to the cross by another. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, 
he says this. He says, he lives by the power of God, for we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. We walk in the same weakness and dependence on the Father that Jesus had when he was a man. And when he was raised in that resurrection power, never to die again, we also live in that same resurrection power. Now, some kinds of weaknesses are just for a season. Some kinds of physical sicknesses, I was just sick, they just last for a season. Some, some seasons of darkness or depression, they might just last for a season. But there's a kind of weakness for a Christian that never goes away. It's the kind that we walk in our whole lives. As J.I. Packer wrote, weakness is the way of the Christian. Jesus didn't cast off his body to become an invincible superman. He is still has the body. He still has the physical body with him now. Mephibosheth lived his whole life as a crippled. And the, we, though we are strong in the resurrection spirit, are still poor in spirit. Though we live by the power of God, we still carry weakness in our mortal bodies. And until the final resurrection, we will still have weakness in our lives. Weakness is still the way. And so like Paul, we continue to boast in our weaknesses, just as Jesus shows that he carries that weakness with him, so that the strength of God, the strength of Christ, the strength of the Spirit, the strength of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together would rest on us, so that just like jars of clay, it shines out of us. Jesus is God in the flesh. He will never cast that off. Our hope is that he will always be able to open the door for us because he is fully God, but that because he is also always and forever fully human, he will always and forever be our brother, the firstborn of the dead. And so we want to walk in the same life that Jesus took in the incarnation and that he never left. We want to walk and depend on that same weakness, just as he allowed himself to become weak like Mephibosheth so that he could become the true and better Mephibosheth. We want to be an heir, a son, like Jesus, in weakness, always depending on God. Anyway, uh, uh, I'm so thankful to be able to share this with you. Uh, I hope you guys have a wonderful Christmas. Happy Christmas Eve. I hope to see you and hear from you again soon. Love you. Bye.